0: I'm Tavis Smiley, and that is the queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner, who passed away yesterday at the age of 83 in Switzerland, and so we are uh, taking the opportunity to play her music in and out of every segment today all three hours of our program, Uh, her music uh, and her genius, her particular and peculiar artistic genius, will in fact live on forever, and uh, we are celebrating the life and legacy today of Tina Turner by playing her music all three hours of this program. Imagine growing up in a notorious black neighborhood in inner city Baltimore, a setting that would later become the backdrop for the acclaimed HBO series, The Wire. While hiding the truth of your white mother's race, a mother who vanished from your life right after birth, and whose family has always rejected you because of your race, all while harboring hostility towards white people. Then consider this. What would it then take to break free from the chains of such a painful past, to confront your family secrets, and to embark on a quest For reconciliation and belonging. I've been waiting for this conversation. I am honored to welcome to this program the author of the book out now called More Than I Imagined What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. John Blake, sir, an honor to have you on the program. How are you today?
1: Fine, thank you. It's an honor to be here. You summed it up beautifully.
0: Well, that's my job, man, <laughs> to sum it up beautifully. <laughs> your job, though, is to unpack it beautifully, and I'm glad we have an hour uh, to give you the space to do just thank that. You. Let's start uh, at the beginning. Uh, tell me about your neighborhood in Baltimore growing up.
1: Well, it's a very famous neighborhood, uh, as you alluded to. It's the setting. It served as the setting for the HBO series, The Wire. It was also the epicenter for the 2015 protests that erupted when a young black man named Freddie Gray uh, died in police custody. And so this is a place that's known as like this symbol of black rage or anger, how we want to describe it. But it's a place where I grew up where there was tremendous hostility toward white people. So I grew up there, but I had the secret. My mother was white. And I was ashamed of that. So I grew up as what I call a closeted biracial person. I grew up in an era in the 70s when biracial was looked at differently. There was no Kamala Harris or Obama. And so there was this secret. And I knew that I had this whole entire side of my white family, but I knew nothing about them. All I was told about my white family was this, that your mother's name is Shirley. She's white. And her family hates black people. So that's what I grew up with.
0: When you're growing up with that, uh, that frame, um, mm-hmm. to your point uh, of being a closeted, uh, biracial person, um, how about you showing up in the world? Uh, with all of that going on, how, as, a, as a young person, how were you showing mm-hmm. up in these spaces?
1: When you say showing up, you mean how did? Um, how, how,
0: how, how did you move? How did you? How, how, what? what t- tell me about your being, your moving, your oh yeah, your okay. your personality, your style. I'm trying to get a sense of uh, when all that is up on you, uh, all that is inside of you. Put another way, how, how are you showing up in the world as a young person in Baltimore in this community?
1: Um, I, you know, if I look at the pictures of myself as a kid back then. And you see a big smile on my face. But for what I remember, I grew up with tremendous anger mm-hmm. because I, I tell people that I felt like I came into the world with half of my identity amputated at birth. Yeah. Like I knew there was this whole other side of me I knew nothing about, and I knew they wanted nothing to do with me. So that filled me with a lot of anger. And I also grew up with shame. I was ashamed to have a white mother. When I would go to school, I would mark her race on the school forms as black. And so it was shame and anger. But if you saw me, you couldn't really see that because, you know, I had a smile on my face as a kid. But I grew up with a lot of shame and anger. And I think that was also accentuated by the fact that I spent most of my time in foster homes. So it was a kind of a a lot of things that were going on. Were
0: you ashamed of the fact that your mother was white or ashamed that your white mother had abandoned you or
1: both? Both. Yeah, both. Um, you know, um, it's, it's hard to kind of describe for people today because being biracial is almost like cool. Uh, it's, it's like we're seen as these symbols of a new America. And I have, and I have definitely, you know, child issues with that. But back in that era, when my parents met one another in the mid sixties, interracial marriage was illegal in much of the country. Mm-hmm. And so when my parents began to walk openly in Baltimore with one another, my father was a black man. Was literally taking his life in hand. So, uh, yeah, that that was it. Was a, it was a very different world.
0: Mm-hmm. Your mother had abandoned you. Uh, what was your father or and, and or his family saying to you during this period of your life as a young person?
1: Tabitha said nothing. Yeah, I mean, it was it was uh, it was a secret. Nobody talked about it. Um, it. It was like she was a ghost that never existed, and I had. I didn't know what she looked like. I didn't. There was. Uh, I didn't know the sound of her voice. I had no memory of her. So what I tried to do is not think about her. And I told myself that she's probably dead and didn't want anything to do with us because we were black. And I say us because I had a younger brother, mm-hmm. uh, Patrick.
0: Mm-hmm. How does one process at that age being told um, not so much that your mother is white, but that your mother's family? Hates you because of your race. I mean, how do you process that latter part that your mother's family can't stand you?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, it, it the way I processed it back then had a lot to do with where I grew up. It all made sense because in my neighborhood, our uh, rejection and hostility from white people was expected. I hardly ever saw white people. Um, and I tell people from kindergarten, no, from Head Start. To my high school graduation, when I went to public schools in Baltimore, I only saw one white student. And we looked at her like she was Bigfoot, like we couldn't believe it. <laughs> so the only, white pe- the only white people we ever saw in our neighborhood were police officers who were abusing people and authority figures. So in a sense, the rejection from the white side of my family made sense to me because of where I grew up, because we felt people around me, even those who didn't have white parents, We felt rejected by white America. That's the type of racial isolation that we grew up with.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about that racial isolation uh, when we come forward. Uh, And I'm working my way, speaking of coming forward, um, to the moment in this conversation where uh, John Blake will reveal to you what happened at the age of 17. At the age of 17, he has a surprise encounter that uh, uncovers this disturbing family secret. And launches him on a quest to reconcile with his white family. We'll get to that as this story unfolds. You're listening to John Blake, author of the new book, More Than Imagined. What a black man discovered about the white mother he never knew on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Chavez Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580 as we continue to celebrate the life and legacy of Tina Turner. Passed away yesterday at the age of 83. And uh, Good excuse. Any excuse is good to play Tina Turner music, and so we're doing it all three hours of our program today in honor of her artistic genius over the many decades. Uh, our guest in this hour is John Blake. He's author of the new book, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew Just Getting Started uh, in uh, what promises to be a rich conversation. He's already laid the foundation, and um, I am titillated already, because i I got the book. I read the book. You haven't. (laughs) But I'm still titillated uh, by the story and the way he's he's laying it out. Um, Before I I jump back into the story, uh, John, we have uh, all kinds of folk listening. This station is flagship in L.A., but heard across the nation and seen across the nation on YouTube and on our live stream. And got a bunch of folk from Baltimore checking in right now, and they want to know specifically what your set was. What is your set? What is your hood specifically in Baltimore? Where where, where specifically?
1: Okay. Tell them that I grew up on a place uh called Pulaski Street, which uh intersected with North Avenue, which was about three blocks down from Mondamen Mall. And for those in Baltimore who don't know where that is, that was about five minute walk from where Freddie Gray was arrested. If you remember those that famous footage of Freddie Gray being arrested and put in handcuffs, I used to walk over there at night to listen to Jimi Hendrix from my buddy in high school. So Elassey Street and North Avenue is where I grew up. And I went to Walbrook Senior High School.
0: All right. For all you Baltimoreans, there you you have it. Now you know exactly the set, the hood uh, from which John Blake comes. Um, You said earlier in this conversation, John, that you grew up obviously uh, in that part of town and you were racially isolated. When you look back on it now as a grown man, as an an adult, um, this, this, this question might sound strange to you. Um, mm-hmm. but just work with me to the extent you can. When you look back on that yeah. racial isolation that you uh, grew up in, what are the good points of that and what are the bad points of growing up racially isolated? And I, and I, I again, a strange question, I don't need to call it much more than that, but are there good things about that and are there bad things about growing up in a racially isolated space?
1: Well, I actually think, Tavis, that's an excellent question. I've thought a lot about that. The good thing is that when I where I grew up in Baltimore, uh, there was a sense of black community. Mm-hmm. Um, there were churches, little league, uh, little leagues uh, games. There were institutions, uh, black organizations. The NAACP was very active. So, because we were so isolated, we had to depend on one another for strength. And I talk a lot, for example, about the black church that I attended, and that's when I got a hint of the power of the black church—the same power that we used to get through slavery and Jim Crow, I saw that, I felt that, and that helped me as a kid. So that was really good. The bad part was on a certain level, we didn't have the access to the same resources as the white schools in Baltimore. I was very consciously aware when I went to the public schools, we didn't have the same quality of books and resources. And so I felt that, but I think on a deeper level, and i talk about this in the book mm-hmm. because I was so racially isolated I developed all these stereotypes about white people, and one of the stereotypes I developed is that, this is embarrassing to admit, but that I assumed as a student that white people were just more intelligent than black people. No one told me that, but it was just this assumption I had that kind mm-hmm. of floated in the air. So I, I had this kind of mixture of, of anger, intimidation, and fear toward white people because of the racial isolation. And add to that that knowing that my own mother was white, so that was pretty complicated
0: yeah i'm I'm, I'm laughing because uh you said it sounds pretty uh, pretty bad to share, but let me just be honest yeah. uh, let me let me be honest let me let me join you uh, on this on this on this island uh, because there okay. was a, there was a point in my life uh growing up as I did in all white community, I felt the same way. Uh, it, really? it 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 didn't take me it didn't take me much long much much long much uh it didn't take me too long into my career sure. to realize that that couldn't be farther from the truth. It, it, I I found myself I mean earlier in my career I used to you know this won't surprise you or the listeners are they many people that followed my career earlier in my, in my career uh I appeared on all these national shows on CNN and ABC and I mean everywhere you know on the Sunday morning talk shows and and there was a point in my career. Where I'm not even so much sure. I thought that they were necessarily brighter than me, but I was intimidated. I was intimidated yeah. by all these white yeah. people, and it just it took me a while of doing what I do to realize they ain't all that. They, I mean, I I, I ain't hating. Yeah. I'm just saying they're not all that. Uh, and and the other thing, the other thing I discovered was that oftentimes, uh, in situations where you are intimidated by the other, and that other happens to be white. If you can find your own moral compass, if you can find your own moral center and make the moral argument, make the argument about truth and justice and fundamental fairness, it sets you apart from everybody else in the room anyway. I'm I'm, I'm detouring just for a second here, but I want to just say, I I just want to share with you that there were moments in my career where if I didn't think they were smarter I was certainly intimidated by them and it took me a while of doing what I'm doing uh, and have done for now 3 plus decades to realize that they weren't all that and that I belonged in yeah. those spaces I could hang in those spaces I could make my argument stick in those spaces but that didn't happen for me overnight so I, I just want to share with you that you're not alone in, in thinking oftentimes and let's face it let's be let's be let's be let's be, let's be real about it uh, there there, there are reasons why there are adages like the white man's ice is colder. It ain't just you or me. There are a whole lot of black people yeah. who have always thought and some who continue to think that white anything is better than yes. black everything. And so we're not right. we're not the ones who feel that way. So I, I just want to just put that out there for what for, for what it's worth. Let me let me let me just ask you, though, at what point in your life did you finally figure out, as I did, that that ain't necessarily true, John Blake?
1: Well, I think it's kind of similar to you when I begin to actually have relationships with white people starting with the white members of my family. Mm-hmm. And I began to see that people were people. Yeah. They're I mean they're people complex. There's there's. I mean it it was kind of weird if you went up to my neighborhood and said, "Let's go out to a white neighborhood and play a sport against them or a dance-off, mm-hmm. nobody would be intimidated. Mm-hmm. But if you asked us to engage in something where we were had to use our intellect and our minds, Hello. we would have been intimidated. You're
0: preaching. You're in, preaching. Fact,
1: I, I, yeah, in fact, I tell a story in my book where I was invited to be on this thing called It's Academic, which was this high school academic team where we would go on television and debate with white schools throughout the city. I said no because I didn't want to be embarrassed. I was intimidated. So that 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 thing where I, I look into these all black like inner city neighborhoods and I see these young black men and women and I can see that that same insecurity yeah. that I once had. I can see it in them, and that's something that you got to really deal with.
0: And sadly, uh, there are still black kids right now who get ridiculed mm-hmm. get ridiculed for acting acting white because they're studying. Acting white because they're going to the library, acting white because they're on the honor roll, acting white because you're on the dean's list. I mean, there are still folk who get intimidated by that today. So what you experienced or what I experienced, um, sadly, um, still uh, persists in many spaces uh, in this very moment. Uh, before I go forward, let me go back one more time right quick, um, because I, I am curious as to what you heard um, from your father, your father's family. What, you, what did you hear as a young person uh, about? Uh, the fact that he and your mother uh, grew up in a time and space where interracial dating, in fact, was illegal. I, I, you know, I read it in your book. You mentioned it earlier, but my mind immediately went to that film, Loving. You recall the film, Loving? Yes. Uh, I love yes. that. Love that film. Love that film about the story of the Loving family uh, in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, who made history, of course, all the way up to the Supreme Court uh, to make interracial marriage uh, legal in this country. It's a great movie. If you've never seen the film Loving, you must see that's powerful film. It's available somewhere at Netflix. Somebody's got it. But check out the film Loving. Anyway, my question is, what did you hear as a young person about the ways in which your parents were put upon, if I can put it that way, because they were interracial and they were dating back then?
1: Uh, they, they went through hell. Uh, my father told me stories about when he first went to visit my mom um, at her place, which was this working-class, white, Irish-Catholic neighborhood, all-white in Baltimore. Um, her father answered the door, called him the N-word, physically assaulted him, and had him arrested by the police. And But they continued to see one another. Mm. I mean, that's courage to my mom, who was this young white woman who was uh, willing to defy her family and her community. And so... To answer your question, when they would walk out in public, people would actually stop the cars in the middle of the street, glare at them, drive up, do a U-turn and come back and glare at them. Police officers would harass my father. Um, one time they went to a bar and after they were, after they finished drinking from the glass, the bartender would take the glass and shatter it in front of them. Mm. So that's the kind of stuff they went through. And I didn't really, really think about it until I was older. I was like, wow, my mom and father had a a lot of courage. So that was the norm back then.
0: Yeah, you you went there already. Let me just follow up, though. You called it courage, and I take your point. Uh, What did their story years later say to you in retrospect about the power of
1: love? Man, that's another excellent question. You're really making me think here. Um, That's my job, John. That's my job. That's my job. (laughs) (laughs) Okay what is show their story with what, what i really thought about later about the power of love i, I got to be honest first i didn't really know if my father really loved my mother mm-hmm. um i i wondered about that and i didn't realize until i saw this little dramatic incident in my life something i saw him do for my mother then i realized that he he really did love her but what i saw in their relationship later Is that, I'm trying to put this in in, in a few words because it's a big concept, but Mm -hmm. I'm a journalist like you, and I've long thought that power comes from the top, Mm -hmm. like from Supreme Court justices, politicians, they shape and and kind of shape the direction of the country. But then when I think about what my mother and father did in the mid 60s, I don't believe that as much anymore because Mm -hmm. They were part of this vanguard of white, black, and brown people in the mid-60s when they went through hell. And they said, you know what? We know it's legal. We know most of, the, of society is opposed to us, but we're going to love who we're going to love. And when enough people did that in the mid-60s, they created this ripple effect, and it created this momentum for change. And my mother didn't have much, but she was part of that. So because of what they did, they created this world where I live in now and nobody thinks twice about interracial marriages and biracial children. Yeah. They created that world, not Supreme Court justices, not politicians. They started it. The politicians and the judges followed later, but they started it. So they have made me see the power of love and how ordinary people can really change things.
0: Speaking of powerful, that is a powerful um, uh, frame that you just laid out, that it's always from the mm-hmm. bottom up, never the top down. I take your point. So right. you mentioned you're a journalist, and you, indeed you are. And um, so you're going to tease me. You're going to tease the entire audience with the thing you saw your dad do for your mama and not tell me. Uh, we, we, We don't like being teased around here, John Blake. So when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports, whatever that thing is that you intimated a moment ago that you saw your dad do for your mother that made you understand that he really did love her. We're going to hear that story, uh, whether you want to tell it or not. We're going to hear it when we come past news, traffic, and sports. And I still haven't got to the point of the conversation I'm working my way toward. What happened to John Blake at the age of 17 when he had this moment? We'll get to that when we come forward with the author of More Than Imagined, what a black more than i imagined uh, what a black man discovered about the white mother he never knew john blake is on kbla talk 1580. miles let's see what you did there we're about to hear a story from john blake about the love between his black father and white mother and here comes miles with prisoner of your love from tina turner who we are celebrating all three hours of our program today given her passing yesterday before we get back to uh this love story and uh what john blake then discovered At the age of 17, some breaking news here. Uh, We've been talking about racial isolation uh, in Baltimore and uh, more broadly in uh, in this country. We spent our first hour talking uh, to Nikema Levy Armstrong about the fact that uh, we are commemorating the third anniversary today of the murder of George Floyd. And here comes breaking news that uh, Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the far right Oath Keepers militia, was sentenced moments ago to 18 years in prison for his conviction on seditious conspiracy charges for the role he played in helping to mobilize the pro-Trump attack on the U S Capitol on January 6, 2021. Uh, it is uh, the longest sentence so far coming from this federal investigation. I wonder how he feels now about leading that attack, that insurrection on the Capitol, uh, on, uh, Uh, January 6, 2021. Now he will be serving 18 years in prison for that seditious act. Uh, Wonder what he is thinking right about now. Anyway, there you have it. Uh, Breaking news. uh, Every now and then, (laughs) something happens in this country that makes you feel like one day we may be maybe perhaps possibly uh, one day we may be a nation as good as its promise. Uh, and so when you hear news like that, uh, we are compelled to share that with you. But uh, breaking news, we want to get on uh, to you uh, right away. Now, back to our conversation with John Blake, author of the book, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. Uh, and before we get to what happened at 17, John, you tease this audience and you tease me with this uh, with this notion uh, of realizing at a certain point in your life um, how your father really, really in fact felt about your mother when you saw something specific or in particular that he did for her. So what is that story, sir?
1: I, I, I want to ask you a little favor to, to make, for that story to make sense, I will first have to tell the story about how I met my mom Go ahead, and then it will make sense and I'll try to compress it.
0: This is, this so is, this is, is, this, is this, this is your conversation. So you do it the way you want to do it, brother.
1: <laughs> okay. So, so at 17, I'm on my way to Howard university and I've, I've not met my mom, anybody in her family. And my father comes to me one day and he says, hey, uh, do you want to meet your mom? And so it was a bombshell. So I, along with my younger brother, Patrick, we were driven to this this really menacing looking red brick building uh, on the outscout um, just in rural Maryland. And I tell people it looked like a set for the Shawshank Redemption. It was a very awful looking place. And we were escorted into a waiting room. And while we were waiting, we could hear people moaning in pain in distant hallways, and we'd hear other people just laughing hysterically. And um, someone guided a very thin white woman out into the waiting room, and when she saw us, her eyes lit up, and she just came to me and said, Oh, boy, John, oh, boy, Pat, it's so good to see you. And she hugged us, and it was our mom. And one of the reasons that meeting was so awkward was not just because that was the first time I met her, It was because of where I met her. We were in the waiting room of a mental institution. The first place I met my mom was in a mental institution. Nobody told me, including my father, what had happened to her, that she had been institutionalized because she uh, had schizophrenia, a severe uh, mental illness. We didn't make that discovery until that very day, that minute we were in the waiting room. So that began this journey. But one of the things it did for me, I remember just very just vividly, Is That before that meeting, I didn't think like any white person could understand what it meant to be black, to be looked down, to be treated with contempt, you know, just for being born a certain way. But when I saw my mom in a hellish place, and this mental institution was notorious for abusing patients, I I, I said, I thought to myself, I had never seen a black person suffer like that. So for the first time in my life, I began to feel empathy Mm -hmm. for a white person instead of hostility. And that began with my mom. And then to fast forward to the story that you alluded to. So as I began to know my mom and her uh, mothers of her, and other members of her family, the question I had was, you know, did my father really love her? Did he take advantage of what, what was going on? And I remember later on, and I went to visit her one day, and my father was there. And I began to see them laughing, joking, dancing, and just doing all these things. And I saw this tremendous affection between them. And I began to really believe, like, wow, he really did love her. And I told my older brother about it. And he said, you know what? All those years your mom was in those mental institutions, she was being shifted from place to place. Your father always went to visit her. He never lost contact with her. He always took stuff with her, looked out for her. Her family had abandoned her. Her white community had abandoned her. Society had abandoned her. But my father never abandoned her. What I saw in that moment moment, that well, he never lost touch with her that he had kept in contact with her for all these years, and never told anyone
0: I well, have a question I asked earlier for the second time, so what did that say to you about the power of love
1: well it it it's a tremendous i mean it's it's you know for my mom that's all she had i mean she didn't have she needed that because when you're when you're suffering from an illness like that you you People feel, like, neglected from society. She was a very devout Roman Catholic, and she would always ask me for these things called prayer books. And her favorite saint was St. Jude. And I asked her, why was St. Jude her favorite saint? And it was because St. Jude was the patron saint of hopeless causes. She saw herself as a hopeless cause. Mm. However, because of my father's love that she received from him, I think in those moments that she was with him, She didn't see herself as a hopeless cause. And that to me is the power of love.
0: All right, John, you got me tearing up in here, man. You got me tearing up in here. I know there's no, there's no crying at KBLA. We don't do that around here. Um, But you got my eyes watering brother. Um, Let me go back one second here. Uh, Why and what happened on your way to Howard university in that moment of all the other moments that he could have done this in, why in that moment did your father ask you, do you want to meet your mother?
1: I think because he felt like I was 17, I was on the cusp of manhood, that that was time to do it. But to be honest, Tavis, I think one of the reasons he, he didn't talk about that, and didn't tell us about that, is because back then people didn't really talk openly about mental illnesses. Uh, it was such a stigma. And I don't think he knew how. And I think that when he saw that I was about to leave home and go to college, he figured this is the chance. You have to learn about your mom now. I think it was just the timing, and I think he had procrastinated because he just didn't know how. Like many people, they just didn't know how. And I should add this: back in those days, when if a, a young woman, well, if a woman was white and Catholic, if she had interracial children, sometimes the Catholic Church would see her, or women like that, as a wayward woman, and they would institutionalize her. So, I don't still don't know to the extent of how much racism impacted my mother's being institutionalized, but I think it was also a factor. Mm.
0: I was just about to ask that question. So you are you're, you're prescient on top of all the okay. other uh, on top of all your other brilliance. You're prescient because I, I am as I was reading the story, prepping for our conversation. I was processing to what extent um, her children being taken from her, essentially being given away at birth um the racism that she endured trying to love your father i i i i wondered for the last day or two have wondered how that might have impacted her overall health um and i'm i'm just i'm just I'm, yeah. I'm, it's fascinating to hear you say now um obviously this is your story that you have had you've processed the same kinds of questions
1: yeah i i did and I, to be honest i only as i've gotten older have I begun to understand a little bit more about the pain that she must have suffered? Just imagine, you're this young woman, you have two boys, and they're ripped from you. Mm-hmm. You don't get the chance, she didn't get a chance to see us grow up. She didn't know, you know, she just, she, she, I mean, that's, the, that's a primal bond between a mother and a child, and, and we were taken from her, and she never saw us grow up. I, I, the kind of pain, to and then add on to that, you're in a, mental institution cut off from society. That's why I I, I say, I wrote an essay about my mom for CNN about two weeks ago. A lot of people read. I said that my mom was a lot more powerful than she realized. She was an incredibly resilient woman.
0: Prior to meeting your mother, you write about this in the book prior to meeting her in that institution. um, There were two questions you were wrestling with. Question one, where is my mother? And question two, where do I belong? Where is my mother and where do I belong? Those are two questions he's wrestling with in this book, more than I imagine what a black man discovered about the white mother he never knew. And so when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580, I want to know uh, what happens in his life when he gets the answers to the first question at least, where is my mother? And then how he processes his way, navigates his way through the second question, where do I belong? Our guest is John Blake. John Blake, tell me about these two questions in any way you choose to do so. Where is my mother and where do I belong?
1: Well, I found out at 17 physically where she was, and that was a shocker, as I mentioned earlier. But what I also found out is that though physically her body was in this really hellish place, she had never left me. She had never stopped loving me. When I saw her with my brother, she knew exactly who we were. And in the subsequent years, she showed in so many different ways how much she loved us. So uh, she, that was good. You know, I knew where she was, and I knew she never left me. Uh, the second thing, where do I belong? Um, I found my sense of belonging ultimately in faith. Uh, I, I end up joining an interracial church not long after I met my mom. And that did a huge degree. Those relationships I experienced in that interracial community really changed me. And that's why, you know, what I tell people today, facts don't change people; relationships do. Mm. And so I found my sense of belonging there. But I tell people, I'm not saying it's like I'm trying to convert people. I think any kind of interracial community you can join, whether it's a bowling league, a 12-step program, uh, anything where you're around people who look different, who think differently, is also very healthy for you. And that's what I found out to be my experience.
0: Mm-hmm. What is it like? Uh, I'm just curious now. Uh, what is it like mm-hmm. growing up in such a racially isolated neighborhood uh, uh, and going to black churches? And then at a later point <laughs> in your life, you end uh you laugh, you're laughing already. I ain't got to finish my question, do I? <laughs>
1: No, you go ahead. I don't want to assume. I know the question, but go ahead. It's no. such a good question. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, you know what I'm about to ask you, brother. You go from a black church to an interracial church. Um, I don't know if they have a Hammond B three uh at the interracial church. No. Uh, he, no. Said, he said no, they do not. But what 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 is that experience like?
1: That was a good, good question. That was a great experience because what I learned is that a lot of people try to do interracial churches, but they don't laugh. Mm-hmm. And the reason a lot of times they don't laugh is because they don't have that hammond. So I happened to go to this really <laughs> unique church in Atlanta where, I, I kid you not, you will walk in there, you would see a picture of a brown Jesus. They would have like African-American spirituals. They did all these things to make you feel like you could bring your whole self in as a black person. So, and they had, when you looked in the pulpit, it wasn't just white people in charge. You saw women, you saw black women, you saw brown people. And it was a place where you could criticize pastors and all that. So it wasn't just that we shared pews, we shared power, and that was key. So, yeah, I, the interracial churches were, were great for me. But I tell people, any interracial community, any place you can join where not everyone looks at things alike, It's not only going to be good for you, but I think that's the way our multiracial democracy will survive in the future.
0: Uh, Ah, There's that prescience again. That's where I want to go when we come forward and wrap this conversation of what you think that prescription, uh, as you just laid it out, uh, would do uh, for enhancing uh, this experiment that we are trying to get right uh, in multiracial democracy. Uh, I think of uh, Dr. King's eat it. Uh, about uh, Sunday morning being the most segregated time of the week in this country. (laughs) Sunday morning, uh, King would often say, is the most segregated time of the week in this place called America. And John Blake's uh, uh, story about joining and becoming a member of an interracial church um, uh, brought that to mind for me. In our remaining moments with John Blake, uh, as I said, we'll talk about um, uh, what that prescription uh, could mean for the future of our democracy. You're listening to the author of the book, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew, John Blake on KBLA Talk. John Blake, let me just say in the uh, four minutes I have left here that your story is arresting. It is inspiring. It is instructive. It is informative. It is uplifting. uh, And it may be... um, um, instructive in the sense that uh, you offer us a prescription for the path forward as we try to build a multiracial democracy um, in this country. So to that end, uh, tell me how you think your story uh, and the advice you offered moments ago might be helpful in um, uh, America advancing this notion of
1: multiracial democracy. Well, thank you, and thank you for those kind of words. I think if I look at my story, the most important takeaway that i i I think of now is to believe to, to not give into this belief that racism is a permanent part of being an american that this is just an unescapable feature of our life that we can't get past it i've seen this belief among so many people grow each year people become more and more pessimistic they feel like you know january 6th is going to be our new normal and I tell people, my family was split by the same racial divisions that tore this country apart, and we can heal folks so and others. So I think the most important thing is to believe that we can get past this. I, I was talking to a guy last week. He said, oh, racism is embedded in the DNA of human beings. That's not true. I, I've just seen people change in my family and elsewhere in ways I never thought, and I have changed in ways I never thought. Mm-hmm. And so much of this comes through. Contact interracial relationships and community. There are things you can't learn from reading a book or going to a protest. Those things are vital, but you also got to be in relationship and community with people who are different.
0: I agree with your friend, whoever you were talking to that said that racism is not embedded in the DNA of people. I believe that. Um, But I also believe just as strongly, John Blake, that racism is systemic in this country. And because it is systemic, it may be the most intractable issue that we face that we face in this country. Your, your thoughts? Uh,
1: th- th- no, definitely systemic. And I think what I tell people is because it's so pervasive, it's so, because it's so systemic, mm-hmm. we have to have many different weapons to uh, attack it. Mm-hmm. And part of those, of course, laws, policy. But we also, what I'm saying is that in the past couple of years, I don't hear people talking as much about the importance of interracial relationships in these communities. I think that's also an indispensable tool, and if we're going to go at the systemic race, you know systemic racism that's in our institution, we have to also get at those attitudes that kind of reinforce those attitudes you know, in, in, that are systemic. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I think, like I said, it's not either or. Mm-hmm. It's not, I'm, not saying, I'm not telling people if you just hug white people, racism will disappear. That's not going to make mass incarceration disappear. Mm-hmm. I'm saying we have to do all of that. That's part of our toolkit. Just don't forget the human side, the relationships, and the community while we're also working on the systemic part. Uh,
0: a perfect note. on which to end this conversation, which I have enjoyed immensely. Uh, I thought I would, and sometimes I, I get surprised and enjoy it more than, uh, than I even imagined. Uh, speaking of imagined, his book is called <laughs> More Than I Imagined, like this conversation, right? More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. Uh, the author of that book is the journalist John Blake. Um, John, I've enjoyed this, as I said, greatly. Thank you for the book. Uh, all the best to you, sir, in the coming months and years.
1: Thank you, Tabitha, for those any questions. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you, sir, my my, my, my great delight. When we come forward, uh, the two sisters of the brilliant artist Basquiat join us live in studio. I'm excited about this, and you will be, too, when they come in moments from now after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk. 15.